Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you all. Uh, the last two weeks, as many of you know, I had to miss uh, due to the birth of our son, who was doing really well. I want to thank you as well for your prayers and just thoughts our way, and especially for those who have been providing meals. Uh, that has been my favorite part of all this, as you all know. Uh, I thought about having another child just so I can have some more meals brought our way, um, but I don't know if that's the right reason or not, um, but it's been incredible. Seriously, thank you uh, for your love that you showered upon my family during this time and continue to do. Uh, we're going to kick off a new series, uh, really more, more of a journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, we are going to go all the way through Matthew, um, and it's, I, I, I'm just being honest, I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, what I will tell you is that we will take breaks throughout the way um, to, to pause and have some other series and passages of scripture that we'll kind of break it up with. But we're going to go all the way through. Um, Lord willing, we will make it through Matthew at some point. And um, I'm excited about it, especially as we kick off this Christmas season and we look through the book of Matthew. Matthew's not the place that many people like to go for the Christmas story because Matthew is filled with a lot of grief in the Christmas story. It's not your typical, uh, I mean, Luke's account is the shepherds and, and all of this joy and peace on earth, and there's a lot of that. And Matthew goes through a much more difficult perspective of the Christmas story in many ways. And it begins in a way that's very unlikely as well that we'll see today. But just before we get there, um, as we go throughout Matthew, I'm going to hopefully give a lot of context and, and the reason behind why Matthew's writing the way he is. But let me give you just a brief overview of this book as we launch into the series in Matthew. Um, Matthew was written by, you probably guessed it, Matthew, one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was a tax collector before Jesus called him to follow him. And if you don't know much about tax collectors during this time, Matthew would have been a, a, an Israelite, a Jew, who was considered a traitor by his people because Matthew worked for Rome now. And Matthew was not only working for Rome, but he was taking money from his own people. And these tax collectors would often take more money than they were supposed to to line their own pockets with and get rich off of the backs of their own people. And so as you can imagine, they were not very well liked. They were considered the lowest of the low by many people in Israel. And that was Matthew before Jesus called him to follow him. So he begins to follow Jesus and becomes one of the apostles. And he wrote this gospel account likely in the mid-50s to early 60s AD. So just a few years really after Jesus had ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And his main theme, we have four gospels. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all take different approaches, different perspectives to the story of Jesus. Matthew is maybe most well known for his approach to looking at the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, there are more Old Testament quotations in Matthew than any other book in the New Testament. And Matthew also uses the phrase kingdom of heaven more times than any other author in the New Testament as well. That is his focus. He's looking at God's kingdom on earth from the perspective of the Old Testament all the way into the New According to my research, there are about 96, as a matter of fact, quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. So Matthew is full of Old Testament scripture. And while it's primarily a narrative, it, it goes through the story of the life of Jesus. It also contains a lot of his teachings. There are five blocks, five major blocks of teachings. We know really well the Sermon on the Mount. That's one of the five, but there are four others that we'll move through. You see part of the story of the life of Jesus, and then you see this big block of teaching, his parables. He talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven, obviously, and we'll go through all of it together as we move through this series. 
But probably the thing that Matthew is least known for, or people want to least know him for, is the way that he begins his gospel account. The way that we're going to start today, the way that we're going to kick off the Christmas series in our journey through the book of Matthew, because it's where Matthew begins, and it's that list of names that you and I jump over when we are reading our Bibles. I mean, we can all be honest, because we're at church right now. When we're reading the Bible, and we come across a list of names, we go, yeah, I know, all right, names, let me move on, let's get to the good part, right? Because we think to ourselves, I may know some of these people, but I probably don't know most of them, and I don't really know why this is here. I'm sure there's a reason for it. I believe there's a reason for it, but I don't know what it is, and so we move past it. It's known as a genealogy. Luke also has a genealogy in his account, and Matthew gives one here as well. And I was going to read it in its entirety, by the way. I thought about starting this whole thing off by just reading the whole list of names. And then I thought, you know what? There's somebody out there that does it better than I can. He's a guy by the name of Andrew Peterson, and he put all of this to song for you today. And so I thought he would entertain you a lot more than I would. And so I have a video of this song for us to go through this list of names of Matthew, if you would play that for us this morning. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob. Jacob, he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman, Tamar. Perez, he brought Hezron up and then came. Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who is then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, while you all know him, he had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. I thought it was good, yeah. I thought it was good. I think it's legendary because nobody would ever attempt that except for Andrew Peterson apparently, but he did it and I thought he did it well. And, and the question is when you hear that list of names, you read through it, I, I mean if we're being honest, our question often is what's the point of this? Why is this here in our Bibles? Why is this important for us? And why would we begin a Christmas series here? Of all the things that we could talk about at Christmas time, we love to talk about the birth of Jesus. Why would we go through this list of names? And I think 
really we find the answer right away if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to really ponder what the scripture is saying in the very first verse, I think we find the reason of why this is important, why this list of names matters. It's in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. By the way, Christ is not his last name, it's his title, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As I was thinking about this, I thought about my own life, and uh, personally for me, I've never been deeply invested in figuring out all of my family history and my family tree. I, I, knew, I, I knew my grandparents and even many of my great-grandparents while they were alive, and I was lucky enough to know that, but I've never really journeyed further than that because while it's important and I think it matters, for me, I've always thought it's, it's not going to be life-changing because whether or not my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a farmer or not probably won't necessarily have a huge impact on my life. But when we talk about the genealogy of Jesus and the, the names in this list, they are of eternal importance. Because when you see the names in that first verse, the son of David and the son of Abraham, you start to think back to the Old Testament promises to David and to Abraham that the Messiah would come through their family tree, that the Messiah would come through their line. And if God is faithful, then Jesus would have to be a son of Abraham and a son of David, and he is faithful. And he did preserve the line of the Messiah. And so all of these names is Matthew's way of showing us and proving to us that Jesus really is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the Old Testament had been pointing us to all this time. And so what I want to do briefly here is show you these promises, show you the promises to, to Abraham and to David and their importance. In Genesis chapter 22, we find God's promise to Abraham he said, I will surely bless you, and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now Paul gives light on this passage for us in Galatians 3, and he tells us that offspring of Abraham isn't referring to the many offspring that he would have necessarily, it's specifically referring to Christ, Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says it does not say and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Way back in Genesis 22, Christ was promised that he would come. And it's also important to note that as you read this list of names, you see some, and we'll get into this a little bit later, you see some Gentiles on this list. So we see the promise of Abraham being fulfilled even in this list of names that through through the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just Israel, but the Gentiles too. All nations would be blessed. Then the promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And some people say, well, that's talking about Solomon, but we know that Solomon's kingdom came to an end. This is talking about one who is to come, and Peter is clear about that. If you go to Acts chapter 2 and the sermon at Pentecost, it he focuses heavily on how Jesus is the son of David. He is the one who would come. Matthew will bring up again and again 
this truth, this reality that Jesus is the son of David, the, the true king of Israel who would come. But in this list of names, we have this reminder that he is the son of David. And so really at the start of the New Testament, this is one of the reasons we have this genealogy at the start of the New Testament, because that's where the New Testament begins. And those who placed it there, I believe, placed Matthew first primarily because of this genealogy, I believe. At the start of the New Testament, we're hit with the truth that all the stories, the kings, the prophets, the promises, exiles, failures, and victories, and everything else we see in the Old Testament, we're all working to bring us to the arrival of this man, this king called Jesus. That's why it's here. And so really what Matthew's doing for us is he's summarizing the Old Testament. He's saying all these people, all the stories that we've known and read about and have written down for us, it's all meant to lead us to this moment in history when Jesus would be born. And so let me maybe provide you a moment of a sigh of relief. We will not go through every single name on this list this morning. We'll focus on a few. But I want to look at the overall picture of why this is here and why this matters so much for us even today. Our main goal is to see what Matthew has to teach us through his genealogy. And so the first thing that we've kind of already alluded to, but I want to dig deep on is, number one, it proves that Jesus is the Christ. Now you might say, Kenny, a list of names does not do that. Nobody's going to come to saving knowledge of Jesus just by simply reading a list of names. What I'm not saying in this point is that that. If you read this list of names, you'll automatically believe that Jesus is God. What I'm saying is this list of names, this genealogy proves that Jesus is the promised one from the Old Testament. He's the one that the Old Testament was talking about. He's the one that all of these promises pointed us to. That's what Matthew's doing. Whether or not you believe in him and bow to him as Lord, this history, these facts of the genealogy of Jesus Christ prove that he came through the line of David, through the line of Abraham. He is the one who was promised to come. Matthew's gospel account doesn't begin with once upon a time like a fairy tale. It begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus as historical fact. And so for the reader, it it forces you to come face to face with the person of Jesus. Many of you know uh, I have the privilege to be a part of two different podcasts. And on one of them, uh, the Calvary Catechism podcast, we've recently gone through some world religions and Through that process, one of the things that struck me was that every religion that we dealt with did something with Jesus. Every religion that we dealt with had something to say about Jesus. Many of them want to claim Jesus as their prophet, but they do something with the person of Jesus because he is too significant of a figure to just leave alone. You must decide who is this Jesus. His arrival cannot be ignored, and we must face the reality of who he is. And you'll either do it today in this life, or all of us one day will stand face to face with him at the judgment. And so who is Jesus? I think what Matthew's telling us very clearly is that he is the Christ. And you might say, well, you know, this, this whole thing has significance for kind of this moment and, and getting us to this point of knowing that Jesus came from the line of David and Abraham. But it, it, it doesn't need to be really central to what we talk about, does it? Paul thought it did. In, in 2 Timothy, which was Paul's last letter that he wrote, he knew that he was going to be executed soon. He wrote to Timothy, and one of the things that he said to Timothy was, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This truth of Jesus being the son of David was central for Paul, for Paul that he is the promised one. He is the son of David and the Messiah. All of the New Testament authors 
always took great care to remind us that this is, as I said, not just a fairy tale, but this is historical fact. And I love what John says in 1 John to remind us of that. He says, that which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life. John says, we, we saw him, we walked with him, we, we ate with him. Even after he rose from the dead, we ate with him. We saw him, we touched his wounds, we, we know that he is who he says he is. And not just us, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we find out that over 500 people at one time saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. Even secular historians affirm the truth of the life of Jesus. The most well-known of them would be Josephus. We know that he existed, and we also know one of the coolest facts for me about the history of our getting some of the manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because we have actual evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written, these scrolls were written a uh, hundred years or more before Jesus ever even was born. And in them, we have prophecies of Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped on the scene, we have physical, historical evidence that prophecies were made about his coming. And he fulfilled all of them. And I've shared this before, but it's, it's too fascinating to not share again if you've missed it or if you just need a reminder. Peter Stoner did some great work on the mathematical probability of, of somebody fulfilling prophecy. And he says this, the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled just eight prophecies is one in 1,017. And I'm not going to read that number because I don't know what that number is called, but there's the number there if you'd like to look at it. Eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. And we have record of this. We have, we have proof that there's even manuscripts from before the life of Jesus, historically proven that he fulfilled these prophecies. And in these first 17 verses of Matthew, I count three major prophecies, really in verse one, because he's the Christ, he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. He is the promised one. Matthew's genealogy proves to us that Jesus is the Christ. Right off the bat, he confronts us with this historical, verifiable fact that Jesus was born exactly the way it was promised he would be. So that's the first thing that Matthew's genealogy does for us. The second thing it does is it shows us that God saves broken people. And so here's the point where I do want to talk about a few of the names on the list. Because let me be clear, all of us, all of us, everybody who's ever lived besides Jesus is broken and sinful. We all are. However, as you look at this list, you find some people that, quite frankly, if you and I were putting together a genealogy of Jesus, we might not have included because we wouldn't want people to know that they're a part of Jesus' family tree. But Matthew doesn't shy away from that. There's kings that were evil. There's kings in this list who sought after God and those who didn't. There's, there's this, this genealogy is ridden with the failures and brokenness of people, but it also includes people like Abraham and David and Rahab, who all three of those are in another list in the Bible, Hebrews 11, called the Hall of Faith. There are people who were faithful to the Lord and people who were not. But almost every commentator that you read talking about Matthew's genealogy points out one significant thing, that this genealogy includes five women, because women were not included in the genealogies of ancient times. They were not included, but Matthew includes five of them. And I want to talk about all five of them briefly this morning. 
We see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who's called the wife of Uriah, specifically in his genealogy, and Mary. So Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite woman who disguised herself as a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law Judah to lay with her and to bear a child with him. Rahab, also a Canaanite and a known prostitute who helped the Israelite spies escape Jericho. You know the story of the Battle of Jericho. Rahab was a prostitute of the city of Jericho who, who helped these spies from Israel escape. And she was remembered for that. And she's even counted in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 for that. Ruth, another Gentile, a Moabite woman who left her home to be with her mother-in-law, and she married Boaz. We know the book of Ruth is found in the Old Testament as well. You can read more of her story there. She was also David's great-grandmother, King David's great-grandmother. Speaking of David, we have Bathsheba, called Uriah's wife in the story, who David took as his own and had her husband murdered on the front lines of war because of his sin with her. And then we have Mary, the only Jewish woman on the list who's known best, obviously, for being the mother of Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to highlight these women to necessarily show you all of their failures and shortcomings. What I'm doing is I'm highlighting this to show you that included in this genealogy are those who would be forgotten by society and those who did have a past that is less than admirable, that we would not probably want to include them in our genealogies. Many of you might know or have experienced uh, meeting a boyfriend or girlfriend for the first time and wanting to introduce them to your family. There are some family members that you do not introduce them to, right? There are some family members that you keep them from because you go, I want you to know me and my family, but there's some people I just, I want to keep away from you as long as I can. And I think we would be tempted to do that. But God does not shy away from that. Matthew does not shy away from that. God never hides the sin of people He exposes it so that he can forgive and redeem, so that he can do what he does and make beauty from ashes, so that he can restore and preserve the royal line of the Messiah, even through a sinful list such as this. In a world that wants so badly to cancel and to wash out all who they deem as evil, God instead brought about the coming of the Messiah through the most broken and wicked of people. None of their stories were canceled. None of their stories were left out. This was all a part of God's redemptive plan. And he used all of it to bring about the Messiah. Our world wants so badly to silence anyone who doesn't live up to the moral standards of our day and our times. But Jesus knew that we'd never live up to his standards. And so he came to live the life that we couldn't live so he could redeem us to be his own people. And he came through a long list of broken people to save us from our sin. I love the way that Alistair Begg put it. He said, if God is going to preserve his royal line, it isn't going to be an account of his people's righteousness. It's going to be in spite of his people's sinfulness. And even in that, he forgives and redeems. And as we've seen so, so much lately, he makes his people righteous. He adopts us into his family. Or as Paul said it in Titus 3, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus came through the line of a broken, sinful family tree so that we could be adopted into his heavenly family, so that we could be restored, so that we could be made right with God. And so what seems to be a long list of names, what seems to be boring 
what seems to not have much significance is actually an overview of how the grace of God is present throughout the timeline of the Old Testament, how the grace of God is present in the lives of the most sinful and broken of people to bring about the fullness of his grace. This is why, by the way, the invitation of Christmas is better said to be, O come all you unfaithful. And there's that song that we sang last year, by sovereign grace music, O come all you unfaithful, one of my favorites. But that's the invitation of Christmas. Because none of us have it together. Truthfully, none of us have any, any kind of righteousness one up on any of the people on this list. All of us are broken. All of us are sinful before a holy God. And yet the invitation is to come and to know that Christ was born for you and for me. To redeem us, to make us his own. And that's why the final point that we'll take from this genealogy this morning, number three, is that it reminds us that God is faithful, even when we're not. God's faithful to preserve the line of the Messiah. Think about all of the things that had happened in Israel's history, all of the attempts that Satan had made to snuff out the line of the Messiah. And God preserved the family tree. God made sure that Christ would be born. He made sure that he would come and be the promised one. I was reminded when my wife and I found out that we were having a son. One of my family members was quick to remind us that uh, my son would be the last male uh, in, in the family to take on the Robert's name. Um, he, was, he was the last hope of a boy taking on the Robert's name. And I, I, I remembered in that moment, I was reminded how little control I have over my own family history, right? And my own family tree. But we see God in complete control of the line of the Messiah. We see him being faithful to his promise to bring about Jesus just the way that he said. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, we see Jesus promise. God talking to Satan after the fall, said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, talking about Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Through all of Israel's failures, through all of their captivity, through all of their shortcomings, all of their sin, all of their slavery, God was faithful. And so the arrival of Jesus in the manger, among many things, is your reminder that God is faithful to his promises. As Paul said in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, when everything was in place, when all had been accomplished according to the will of God, when the fullness of time had come, at the perfect time, some translations render it, Jesus came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as daughters. This God who had his hand throughout the history of the Old Testament, throughout the family tree of the Messiah, the same God who has his hand throughout all of history is the God who's holding you. It's the God who's in charge of your life, who's sovereign over your affairs, who's faithful to his promises to you. He does not fail. Nothing in history, no enemy, no foe can thwart his purposes. He will always bring his plans to fruition. He'll always prevail. The God who redeemed Abraham, Isaac, Rahab, Tamar, Mary, and everybody else on this list and everybody else in his family throughout human history, the God who redeemed them all is the God who redeems you. And so the story of the begets 
as the King James renders it. If you don't know that word, by the way, the King James in this genealogy would say that David begets Solomon. So the story of the begets is actually a story of the begotten son of God, the only begotten son of God who came so that you could be adopted into his family. And Matthew sets the stage for us that the Christ has come and he is everything that he was promised to be. Do you know him? One of my favorite bloggers writes a lot of articles on desiringgod.com is John Bloom. I just love the way that he, he words so much of his articles. In talking about the genealogy of Matthew, he said this, it's another way to tell us that he, God, loves to redeem sinners. He loves to produce something beautiful out of something horrible. He loves to make foreigners his children. He loves to reconcile his enemies. He loves to make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even for prostitutes, mistresses, and men like me. And I would include myself in that as well. For all of us, he is the God who redeems. He's the God who saves. He's the God who's faithful throughout the course of human history. And this is the God that we will be studying through the life and the teachings of Jesus and Matthew. Because Christ came, he is God, and he came to this earth to reveal the Father to us. As God, he came to show us who he is. And that's who we're going to learn about as we go through Matthew. And so the, the most important question for us as we wrap up today's sermon and begin our journey through Matthew is do you know him? Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with this Jesus? And the important question for those of us who do know him is are, do you have fellowship with him? Are you walking in the joy of the gospel? Because we'll see, and I mentioned this earlier, throughout Matthew, there's a lot of grief in the Christmas story. There's a lot of pain and heartache in the Christmas story. And there might be, and I know that there is a lot of pain and heartache in all of our lives and stories. As we approach the holidays, for many of us, it seems to be even more pronounced. And it can be one of the most difficult times of year. And my question is, are you living in, through the grief, through the pain, are you living in the joy of the gospel? Of this God who sent his son to earth not to be born into royalty, not to be born in a palace, not to be born even in a clean environment, but to be born in a feeding trough, in a manger, in a stable. The most seemingly insignificant of places, God came. And maybe you think that your life is insignificant. Maybe you think that your life doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. Christ came to redeem his people. And our purpose and our meaning come from him. As we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, he makes us a part of his family. And our story, or rather his story, becomes our story. His story of redemption and grace becomes our story of redemption through pain, of redemption through sin. Because as we will see next week, as a little spoiler alert for next week's passage, Matthew 1, verse 21 says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's the hope of Christmas. Not just that Jesus came, and it's a cute little story about him being born in a manger. Not just that Jesus came and he fulfilled all these prophecies, all of that is marvelous and we should look at it with wonder and awe, but that he came to save his people from their sins. 
And the invitation is, if you don't know him, to repent of your sin and turn to this Jesus. To place your faith and trust on him and him alone for salvation. And the invitation, if you know him this morning, is to pray this morning that he would restore the joy of your salvation. And if you're walking in the joy of your salvation, that he would preserve that. That he would renew in you the wonder and awe of the Christmas story. That God is faithful to his promises through this long line of descendants. Christ came. That he does not fail. That he always follows through. Are you trusting in the same God who preserved the line of the Messiah for centuries? Do you know him? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we, as we wrap up this time together? And I always ask for heads bowed and eyes closed for reflection during this time. For there not to be distractions for any of us that we would think about and dwell on what we've heard from God's word today. And that, that we would ask God what this means for us. So when we approach the Bible, we want to first ask, what is the Bible saying? What does this mean? And once we figure out what the Bible is saying, we want to ask, what does this mean for my life? What is God asking of me through his word today? Reminding ourselves all the way that everything that God asks of us, he gives us the grace to live in. He gives us the strength to walk in. This is not a do better, try harder, get closer to Jesus. This is a behold Jesus and let him by his grace draw you closer to himself. This is a reminder of the Christmas story that we hear every year and, and sometimes throughout the year as well that we should remind ourselves of every single day that in the fullness of time, God sent his son and in the fullness of time, in the perfect time, in the right time, he works in our lives as well. So I, I don't always know what exactly God is saying to each individual in here. I know what the word has said. And my, my desire is that you would pray and ask the Lord to reveal to you what you should do with his word today. And my prayer is as well that if you're in here or you're watching online listening to this, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, that today would be the day that you do that. That today you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And if, you, if you're here today and you still have questions, you're still not sure about that, you're still wondering who Jesus is and you wanna know more about him, my prayer is that you'd reach out to us. That you wouldn't just leave with those questions. We'd love nothing more than to walk through that with you. And then my prayer is for every believer in here that your faith would be strengthened through the word of God today, through the grace of Jesus, through the reminder of who he is, that he is the Christ, the promised one, Lord of all, King of kings. Matthew reminds us right off the bat that the king has come and the kingdoms of this world will come and go. His kingdom never ends. May we hold on to him. May we go deeper in our love for him, our knowledge of him this morning. So as I pray in closing, I would ask that you reflect and pray as well. And that you don't leave this place only being a hearer of the word, but that you would seek to be doers of the word as well. And so God, we come to you as we wrap up our time together in your word this morning. 
And God, I want to thank you for the gospel. Father, I want to thank you for sending Jesus to live the life that we can never live and then to go to the cross and to bear our sin, to bear the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin against you and to die and be buried and then to rise again three days later proving that you are who you say you are, proving that you didn't just die to forgive us but you died to give us your righteousness to make us holy and pure. You didn't just die to forgive us to wipe the slate clean, but you died to make us righteous as if we have never sinned in the first place. And when you look at us, those of us who have repented and placed our faith in Jesus, you see your son, the same Jesus who was the king born in a manger. I pray for everybody in here who may be struggling with the events of our world, the events of their own life, the grief that they may be experiencing, especially in this holiday season, that they would remember that you are faithful. You are the same God who preserved the line of the Messiah and you are the same God who always accomplishes your purposes. The same God who always makes all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to that purpose. May we remember that today. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And finally this morning I pray that if there's anybody in here, anybody listening to the sound of my voice today that has never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you would open up their eyes to see the glory of Christ today. And that they too would become a part of the family of God even today and that we would get to celebrate with them. I thank you for this time together. I pray that you continue to be honored as we close and as we go about the rest of our Sunday. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.